You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. As each and every week in our country continues to show itself, every week feels like just an unbelievable week of headlines, events taking place, tragic, sudden, unexpected. It seems like it's just more bad news upon other bad news, whether it be investments in the market, whether it be tragedies of shootings. I think what happens is when we come across headlines and news, we're captivated by just the wrongdoing that's taken place, whether it's someone's responsibility or seemingly no one to blame, but nevertheless tragic. We think about it particularly in regards to issues of justice. This is a common conversation in our society in these last couple of years, and understandably so for a variety of reasons, both present and historic. I think there is a true sense in which everybody can identify with and desire justice. I imagine if a wrongdoing was committed against you, the the theft of your automobile, the breaking in of your apartment, uh, the harming of your person or someone that you love, you would want such a person to be held responsible. You would want justice. But there are other things that we see that in the name of justice, seemingly participating in a system built for justice, are seemingly anything but just. People haven't been committed of crimes that they've actually not been committed. People have been treated accordingly, which it seems like the treatment which they receive differs greatly than the treatment others have received. The very treatment itself seems to be itself unjust. Even the representation in a legal environment of the resources that a person has or does not have often determines whether or not a person will be found guilty or if found guilty, whether or not they'll be sentenced to life. And if they are sentenced to life, whether or not they could be, have the chance of being acquitted. That has been all documented and proven. Well, we come today to our text and we see what I think everybody here in this room will agree is a tragic case of injustice a tragic, despicable, horrific case of injustice. Differing opinions as to what's taking place, as to whom it's happening to about that individual, but nevertheless in agreement, injustice is being seen here. Our text is in Matthew chapter 27, verses 1 and 2, then picking back up in 11 through verse 26. If you're just joining us for the first time, I want to reiterate again a word of welcome, but a point of explanation. It's our practice at Grace Church to go through books of the Bible as our primary means of just feasting on and hearing from God as we want to indeed delight in and rejoice in what it is that's taking place. We've been working our way through the teachings of Matthew as he records the life and the ministry of Jesus. Last week, we had the excursus that Matthew offered us particularly the biography of Judas and how his life ended with his own suicide. 
we return back to what was originally introduced to us, which was this mockery of a trial of sorts that Jesus is going through. For those of you who have been with us, back in Matthew 26, verse 57, we saw what essentially was Matthew's summary of the political, excuse me, of the religious process, which wasn't much of a process at all. It was just really a sham of sorts. Nighttime accusations, no representation, guilty until proven innocent, except you cannot be proven innocent, already reached their conclusion, beating, mocking, spitting. Well, we've got to go public with this. We have to have some veneer of justice in our process. And so that takes us to our text today, Matthew 27. Let me read to you the text. I'll tell you the main point of the text, and then we'll break it down. Matthew 27, verses 1 and 2, and then picking back up in verse 11 and following. When the morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. They bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Verse 11, now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. And Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge. So that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Verse 20, now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two of you, excuse me, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, and what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. 
Then he released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. It's an unbelievable text. An overwhelming example of the miscarriage of justice. Here is the main point we're going to learn through this text. And if you listen to nothing else, you can just simply listen to this as a summary of what we're going to learn. Religious leaders can fail you. Human government can disappoint you. The crowd will mislead you, but Jesus will die for you. Religious leaders can fail you. Human government can disappoint you. The crowd will mislead you, but Jesus will die for you. The five parties that we need to understand to this historic injustice. Let's go back over the text because I want to make sure we just kind of see it in summary fashion, brief for our time this morning, but nevertheless important to see. First of all, we see the wicked religious leaders. Now, we don't need to spend much time here because we've seen them in more detail in the previous weeks, but let's just look at them again because Matthew wants us to see the scene. And this is in verses one of two, one and two of Matthew 27. It says, when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. Now what's happening here in the text, just to remind you is they've had an illegal trial to convict Jesus and sentence him to death, but it's illegal. And furthermore, They don't have any authority to put anybody to death under Roman occupation government. So they have to appear to be publicly, appropriately judicial and deferential, knowing that they can appear to the government of Rome who is occupying their land to do this. But they've already concluded. They're not like bringing in extra witnesses, appealing to the process, saying neutral party to proven guilty. No, friends, he is guilty through and through in their mind. They want his death. As we saw earlier in the previous verses, verse chapter 26, verse 57, he's already been spit on. He's already been struck and punched. He's already been slapped and mocked. That happened late on Thursday night. Now it's Friday morning, presumably early morning. What we will see Later on with Pontius' wife, presumably still sleeping when he got up to take care of some judicial matters, adjudicating this thing. So they bring him to Pilate the governor. In this, verses 1 and 2, we see the wicked religious leaders. Friends, I don't think this needs to have much explanation, but I do think it's worth acknowledging as a religious leader myself, if I can use that kind of term by association. I am myself a pastor of a local church. You happen to be with that very church right now here in Miami. I am very aware, both historically and presently, and if we're going to be honest, futuristically, you will find people who occupy positions of religious leadership in churches, in this case, in the context of synagogues and the temple, that will make decisions, and do things that are completely different than what the Word of God taught them to do. And I want to say that at the outset because the reality is a lot of people, perhaps even some of you sitting here today, 
continue to maintain a distant relationship with religion in general or with Christianity in particular or perhaps any one particular church personally because of previously bad experiences with religious leadership. Now, to be fair, I don't mean to imply every accusation is indeed proven to be true. Sometimes we can suspect things that's just not true. It's sort of this campaign of slander that happens and suspicion and doubt. But other times it is tragically true. I say this because in a point of observation solidarity, no one better understands that than not the person seated to the left and right of you, not the person who maybe you're married to, not the person perhaps you're related to, but Jesus himself. The very system that he created through the very instruction he gave in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy is failing the people and failing him. But that does not detour God's will from being accomplished. It's not sidetracked and derail God's plan coming to fruition. But nevertheless, we see tragically the first party to this historic injustice, the wicked religious leaders. Now, Matthew wants us to meet the second party to this historic injustice. And it's the primary party to this narrative here. It's the incompetent governor. We're introduced to Pilate and he comes into more detail for us. Jesus standing before the governor, referring to Pilate, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Now, now begins this dialogue that you have to understand. This is, a, this is an interesting predicament that Pilate is in. This is seemingly a Jewish internal matter. Pilate is not Jewish. He is here on behalf of the emperor to rule over the Jewish people. But the Jewish people have got themselves in a squabble and they're bringing it to him to adjudicate, to deal with. And they are making that this claim that he is saying, he being Jesus, is worthy of capital punishment. And it's this, this statement of blasphemy, the king of the Jews, which quite honestly, in some sense, he could care nothing about Another sense he has to pay some attention to. Why? Well, the fact that within their religion, someone's claiming something that's true or not true, he could care less about. That's an internal religious discussion. But the problem for him is the threat of insurrection in the territory that he rules over. And if that gets back to the emperor, that he was aware of it and did not deal with it, oh, that will come back on him. So that's why he sort of handed this charge of Jesus being the king of the Jews. That, that the title changes. He's, he's no longer claiming to be the Messiah. He's claiming to be the king. At least that's how it's being presented to him. They know how to get his attention. And then look at this dialogue. Verse 11. He says to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you have said so. He's basically saying, you're saying it. Now, this is very similar to the conversation that Jesus had with Caiaphas. When Caiaphas says, I adjure you in Matthew 26, verse 63, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. In the same kind of interaction that Jesus had with Judas. What you have to understand here is that in the context of Jesus answering Judas, or excuse me, not Judas, uh, Pilate's question, 
either a yes or a no would have been misleading. If he says yes, Pilate would inevitably have understood that Jesus was claiming to be an earthly king and that he was indeed going to lead the Jewish people to rebel against who Pilate was in his rule. It's not what Jesus' kingdom was about. But if he says no, he would negate the fact that he was indeed a king, the king of the kingdom of God. So his answer means that he was indeed a king, but not in the way that Pilate uses the term and understood it. Here's what Pilate concludes, though. He could understand the man is innocent. He's done nothing. And this is exactly what he recognizes. It says in verse 18, he knew those out of envy that they had him delivered up. He understands the significance of what's being asked of him to condemn an innocent man. This is the chance, if the religious leaders have failed, for those in government to succeed. But he will not. He will not. In fact, in other accounts of Mark and Luke and John, we get more of an interchange that goes on in these trials where Pilate tries to basically win a favor with Herod, another Roman ruler. They've got a little bit of a tiff between each other. He's like, well, let me appeal to Herod. This will look like a relational olive branch extension. Herod can make the decision and Herod will respect the fact that he'll like the fact that I'm respecting his authority. Herod gets the guy in front of him. He has Jesus of Nazareth. He's like, I'm not touching this with a 10-foot pole. He sends him back to Pilate. You got to make the decision. Both of these political rulers recognize Jesus has done nothing wrong. But they're all failing in the responsibility to actually address that. So we've got the wicked religious leaders. We've got the incompetent governor. Now, third, we are introduced to the manipulated crowd. Look at verse 15. Trying to find an out on this problem. At the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd anyone prisoner whom they wanted, and they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? Now, there's some debate as to why he adds this, because he does this twice. Who is called Christ? Some would say, oh, he's trying to rub their face in it. I think instead he's basically showing the charge is so ridiculous. I mean, Jesus is standing before him having already been arrested, beaten, spit on, mistreated. Jesus' very physical presence communicates the fact this man is no king. In so much as I could see and assess a king. This, this man has nothing to do with the kingdom of a kingly people. The, the question is a leading question that you would have, say, in a, in a courtroom. Asking the crowd, who do you want? You want Barabbas, who's a convicted felon? Or you want Jesus? He wants the crowd to make his decision for him. He doesn't, doesn't want to make it himself. But look at what tragically happens. You can see in verse 20, now the chief priests and the elders 
these wicked religious leaders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. To destroy him. I'm reminded, tragically, in this text of what is true historically, documented biblically with the Israelites themselves, rarely is the crowd right. Because the crowd can be so fickle. They can be, they can be manipulated by the other people, those in leadership. And that's exactly what happened. Now, just to remind you, for those of you who are not familiar with the scriptures and understand sort of the history of what's taking place within this week, it was only a few days earlier. This is Friday morning. It was only on Monday, four days earlier, that Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and the crowd, the crowd is saying, Hosanna in the highest. They're like fawning over him. They're laying palm branches before him. They're taking their cloaks and laying it out before the donkey. That same crowd is saying, Crucify him. How much confidence have we put in the crowd? One day they love you, the next day they call for your crucifixion. I mean, what we're seeing here, to use modern day language, you're seeing cancel culture at its best. Jesus was popular one day, canceled the next. Except unlike losing your job, Maybe a few followers on social media and maybe your overall public reputation, Jesus is going to lose his life because cancer culture has run rampant here in the text. I'm introduced to now the fourth party in the historic injustice, the interrupting wife. The interrupting wife. This is an exceptional scenario that I want to be lost in you this is passing reference. Look at it, verse 19. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, referring to Pilate, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, referring to Jesus, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now, this is one verse, but it is packed with some implications here. First of all, notice in the text she doesn't even actually come herself to interrupt. That would have been unspeakable for the wife to do in this context, in the middle of his adjudicating this legal matter. This is a serious issue. But she sends word, presumably for some servant in the household, says, hey, uh, your wife's got a message for you. She's had a dream, which presumably is a dream God gave her to just, again, one more time, removing any possibility of innocence, Clearly demonstrating it, the wife is trying to get the husband, who is the political leader, to not do what the crowd's telling her to do, not do what the, excuse me, telling him to do, not do what the religious leaders are telling him to do, but to do what God said to do. Now, here's what's fascinating. In case you're missing it, two different parties are trying to persuade two other different parties to do something. The wife is trying to persuade her husband, don't crucify the guy. Don't touch him. Don't have anything to do with him. He is a righteous man. Trust me, this is true. Meanwhile, the religious leaders are persuading the crowd to persuade Pilate, crucify him and kill him. Pilate, as a display of sort of the ultimate fear of man, what will the people think of me? What will happen to me? Instead of listening 
to what I'm sure was an exceptional representation. Like, oh, there goes my wife again with her morning dreams of visions from God. You know, crazy wife. This would have been exceptional. This would have been head-turning. This would have been abnormal. Dismisses that to listen to the crowd, to listen to the leaders in order to secure the reputation he's been cultivating. The wicked religious leaders, the incompetent governor, the manipulated crowd, the interrupting wife, these are all parties to this historic injustice. But then we're introduced to the condemned Savior. We've heard the dialogue already, but let's now go back to the text, specifically verses 24 through 26. We're going to slow down a little bit here because I don't want you just to see it historically, understand it contextually. I want you to feel it personally. Verse 24, let me read it again. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water, washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us. Oh. And on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. I want you just to enter into what's happening in the scene. It was just the previous night that Jesus was on his hands and knees washing his disciples' feet. Then sitting next to them in a private dinner was telling them the tragic reality that one of them will betray him And then he introduces to them by explanation and unbelievable illumination the meaning of the Passover by explaining to them the Lord's Supper. Then after they sing a hymn together, they go out into the Garden of Gethsemane and he says, hey, would you, would you pray with me? Pray for yourself that you would not enter into temptation. They all fall asleep while he prays for them and prays for himself to the point where he is sweating blood. That much overwhelming sense of the gravity of what he's about to go through. And then they arrive as prophesied, as predicted, as planned. They arrive led by none other than one of his own disciples, Judas, who kisses him as his act of betrayal. Jesus is arrested. And after a brief altercation where Jesus corrects that altercation, all of the disciples run and abandon him. And then on that late Thursday night at about midnight, he goes through a mockery of a trial John and Peter are around. Peter's given time and time and time again saying, raise your hand if you're with Jesus. 
no hand to be raised, no word to be spoken, and no identification to claim, I'm not with him. And then he hears the rooster crow, and he just loses it. It's his Savior told him that would happen. Now it's Friday morning. And the crowd for whom you're about to die for yells, let his blood be on us. And not only on us, our children. Do you feel it? Do you, do you feel that blood lust that we talked about two weeks ago? Do you, do you see like they are blinded by their sinful desires? What I want you to recognize is what's happening here now in the text physically. It's presumably appropriately to expect Jesus would have been in good shape. The amount of walking you did in first century Palestine, getting around, there's no buses, there's no planes, there's no trains. But what's taken place in the previous hours has certainly been a point of exhaustion. He has been beaten, he's been spit on, he's been mocked, he's been abandoned, relationally completely alone, and now comes the scourging. Now, understandably, probably most people here are not aware of what a scourging means. So if I may explain to you why this is so significant. Because Peter says it's significant, Isaiah says it's significant, because in this act is a profound, painful reality of how committed God is to deal with my sin and your sin. Scourging is when you take somebody's body, you strip them of all of their clothes, you tie them to a tall wooden post, and the reason you tie their arms up high is because you want to pull the the skin on the back of the body tight. And now the person is completely naked and exposed. And then what happens is, because now Pilate has ordered this to happen, two Roman soldiers, one standing on both sides of Jesus' body, will take a leather-handled whip as cords of leather. Tied into each cord of leather are pieces of bone from sheep and pieces of metal. And they will proceed to work their way down the entire back of the body, down to the buttocks and the top of the thighs. And as they do that, they'll pull as they do this to be able to open up the body. The reason they do this is to prepare this person for execution. In fact, interestingly, this was normal Roman law. If you were to be executed by crucifixion, you were to be scourged first. The only exception to this would be women, Roman senators, or Roman soldiers, unless the soldiers had done acts of treason, then they were to be scourged. But every other citizen under Roman law was to be scourged. And as they would pull on those straps, they would begin to open up the flesh. Friends, This is barbaric. This is horrific. And it is overwhelmingly grotesque. 
it would not be a silent endeavor. You would hear lash after lash after lash after lash. And the amount of lashes and the intensity was largely built upon the soldiers that were asked to do it at the time. But with there being so much of a crowd to, crawl, to call for this and everybody seemingly in leadership, both religious and political, calling for this, they would have been performing their very best scourging. Ripping his flesh. As the blood capillaries would burst open, the muscle tissue would be exposed an overwhelming amount of blood to be lost. And all that was done in order to prepare the person for the cross. Now here's even more significance. They're on the eve of the Sabbath. There can be no Jewish person on the cross during that time, so they need the person when they're crucified to die quick. So they're going to scourge hard. And hard they scourge. Peter would later go on to write. An eyewitness. First Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For those of you who are here who are not Christians, if you wonder if God cares, I want you to see his son being scourged. And as we'll see next week, being crucified. There is no greater display, as John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. For those of you who are Christians, who sometimes can feel the way I feel, can be circumstantially in a moment, in a relationship, in a season, in a difficulty, at a difficult job, in a difficult marriage, a difficult child, a difficult episode, with a difficult health issue, and say, God, do you see? Do you care? Do you know? And God is basically taking my head between his hands and saying, Eric, can I can direct your attention back to the scourging, back to the crucifixion. There's my answer to your question. I care. The third thing for us to recognize is even as what we see, what Peter says, why did Jesus bear our sins in his body in the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness? Christians, for those of you who are Christians, God did not forgive you so that you can continue to live in your sins. He called us to live by no means perfectly. That's why we need a savior, but he called us to live into righteousness. To stop sleeping with your girlfriends and boyfriends. Stop living so selfishly and proudly. 
Stop giving yourself unto the lust of your flesh. Stop gossiping and slandering. Understand Christ was not scourged and crucified so that I might continue, Eric Bancroft might continue to live in my sins, that I might die to my sin and live in righteousness as a display of Christ in me, the hope of glory. Friends, as we come to the end of this time, We'll take a brief, a brief intermission to greet, but I know that can be a hard transition. The point is to give you a chance. Just reflect. We have a time of Q&A at the end of our service. The last one, usually the last fourth or fifth Sunday of the month, we have a time of Q&A. You're welcome to ask anything you want about the text, about other things going on. People have already turned in questions already. We care about you that you would hear from God whether it's how to deal with pronouns that you're having to be asked to use today or how to deal with your sin or the sins of others you're having to deal with today. But I want you to see first and foremost that we've already heard from God in his word in Matthew 27 of what he will do. When people fail you, he will die for you. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.